Welcome to the study of God's Word with pastor and author Ed Taylor, recorded live from Calvary Chapel in Aurora, Colorado. To learn more about the many resources available through Abounding Grace Media, visit us online at calvaryaurora.org or download our free app on all platforms. And now, here's Pastor Ed to take us into our study. Amen. Would you take your Bibles and open them to two places, Hebrews chapter 10 and Nehemiah chapter 4. Hebrews chapter 10 and Nehemiah chapter 4. If this is your first time here at Calvary Church, we're studying through the book of Hebrews, the Bible book of Hebrews, verse by verse, chapter by chapter, book by book. We've arrived at this section in chapter 10 where this wonderful invitation has been given to us to enter into the presence of God. No longer do we have a human mediator. No longer do we need a priest or a pastor or even some system. No, we, we, we have now this open invitation to anyone that hears my voice that they can come into the very presence of God by faith in Jesus Christ. And that's the key. Notice with me in verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. It says, Therefore, brethren, having boldness to enter the holiness by the blood of Jesus... By a new and living way, which he consecrated for us through the veil, that is his flesh, and having a high priest over the house of God, check this out, because of all that Jesus has done, here's the invitation, verse 22. Let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. What an invitation that is. You remember the access to God was very limited in the old covenant. That only one man once a year could come in with the offering into the holiest of holies and sprinkle the blood on the mercy seat. But now because of Jesus Christ's finished work, he himself is our high priest. His blood's been shed once and for all. And now any of us can come in. The veil of separation has been torn away. And notice how we get to come in. Number one, we get to come in with a true heart. We get to come in, secondly, with full assurance of faith. Thirdly, with our hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. And then finally, our bodies washed with pure water. These were all necessities for the high priest to have before entering into the holiest of holies. But now we have all of these things by faith. We, we have a heart that's been purified. Remember, the promise in the new covenant was our heart of stone would be replaced with a heart of flesh. Not only that, we also have full assurance of faith. We can be assured, not on our performance, but on the performance of Jesus Christ, that he is utterly faithful and reliable. And it's not our failures that hold us back. It's it's not our failures that cause us to be distant from God. It's our failures that have been covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. And we also have these hearts sprinkled from an evil conscience. So you have a true heart today, a heart that has been touched by the Lord, but then when you look backwards, because there isn't anyone among us that don't have a few things in the past that we regret. And because of regret, we don't enter in. And because we don't enter in, we don't enjoy fellowship. You know, the beautiful thing about abiding in Christ is abiding in Christ starts with intimacy and closeness. And intimacy will bring purity in your life. And purity that will bring power in your life And power in your life will bring confidence and draw you back to intimacy. That's the power of abiding. The necessity of abiding is that God does that work in us. Maybe you regret some things from the past. 
but your conscience has been cleansed by the blood of Jesus Christ. So don't let your past hold you back. And then finally, there was those ceremonial washing that every Jew would do in the mikvah. Today we know that, we see that not repetitively, but one time where we enter into the waters of baptism and symbolically we receive the cleansing that God's given to us by the blood of Jesus Christ. And I have to say, one of the greatest things that hold us back from entering into this intimacy and going into this closeness is discouragement. Discouragement is very common as we learned last time. It's a part of all of our lives. There isn't anyone among us who's been able to sidestep or skip discouragement in one form or another. Now there are some differences. Some people go deeper in discouragement than others. Some situations are harder than others. Some personality types go deeper in darkness than others. But all of us get discouraged. And we learned as well that not only do we all get discouraged from time to time, but we also face situations where things don't always get better. Sometimes they get worse. We have our hopes pinned sometimes. It's gonna get better and it's gonna get better. And that is a truth, things do get better, but sometimes things don't get better right away. They get worse. I've adopted a new phrase in my counseling and my ministry to people and that is I hear some of the situations, I will reflect back to them, you know, that sounds harder than hard. Because sometimes you just face things that are harder than hard. I was just speaking to someone this week earlier on and the situation they were describing to me, I actually said that sounds harder than harder than hard. They just needed to have that affirmed in their life that they were thinking clearly because when you go through deep foggy times, you aren't thinking clearly anymore and you think, well, it's just my fault. You know, other people got through this, so why is it so hard for me? I'll tell you why it's so hard for you, because it's harder than hard. And the emotions and the things that you're facing in the trial right now are normal for a person going through what you're going through. Discouragement comes to, it all, to us all. That's what's happening if you come back with me now to Nehemiah chapter four. Discouragement is a tool that the enemy is using against the people of God. The people of God have come back to Jerusalem to rebuild the city and the protective walls. It's just a few people compared to those that were in Babylon, but a few very significant people. They've decided to leave everything that they own and everything that they know and return to a life of difficulty. But they have high hopes. They're going to restore worship to the city of Jerusalem. They're going to rebuild the walls and start a new city of worship. But immediately they're met with opposition. And we used the names of the people that came against the children of God in our study previously to show us different sources of discouragement. Just where discouragement can come from. Because as soon as you take a step to obey God, as soon as you take a step to rely upon God, as soon as you take a step into the holiest of holies, as soon as you take a step to abide and, and to find intimacy, you can expect opposition. The enemy will come against you. We have a real enemy. He's come except to kill, steal, and destroy. And while they were building a wall and building a city, God was rebuilding their lives and working on the inside. Which leaves us with the question, and that is, okay, Ed, I'm convinced, I get it. You have made your case about discouragement, and I agree with you. I've been discouraged myself. As a matter of fact, if you gave me the chance, if I described my situation, you would know what discouragement really is. And you're convinced, and for that I'm grateful. 
And that leaves us the question, okay, Ed, then what do I do with discouragement? How do I respond? And in the chapter before us, I want to give to you eight things that you can do when discouragement comes, either to face it head on or to see it minimized in your life. So if you're taking notes, I want to give you eight things that they responded, that Nehemiah and the people responded to the attacks of the enemy because the attacks of the enemy are real. And I want you to leave here today. I want you to turn off the radio at the end of the broadcast and I want you to know eight new tools in your toolbox of facing discouragement and despair. You know, David already showed us in 1 Samuel chapter 30 that one of the things he chose to do was encourage himself in the Lord to strengthen himself in the Lord. And so God is gonna play a big part of dispelling the darkness in your life and the discouragement. Maybe you feel like the psalmist at times in Psalm 42, verse five. As soon as I read it, it'll be familiar to you. Psalm 42, verse five. Why are you cast down, my soul? And why are you so disquieted within me? And there are those times in our lives where we just like, man, what is wrong with me? Why am I so down? Sometimes you can pinpoint it, it's, it's grief, or it's a loss, or it's fear, anxiety, but other times you're like, what is going on in my life? I should be farther along than I am. Why are you so bummed out? And you just begin to talk to yourself. And then the response, though, of the psalmist, you can't end there. He's got to respond like the psalmist did. He says, why are you so disquieted within me? Hope in God, and I shall yet praise him for the help of his countenance. I don't need to say this to you, but it's worth reminding. When we're in a place of discouragement, we're at a place of choice. And we really only have two choices. The first one is to choose to stay in our discouraged state and actually make it worse. To isolate us, to, to, to come out of fellowship, to stay away from people, to stay away from God's word. We can, it's, it's just easy to stay in discouragement. It's easier to stay in discouragement than it is sometimes to do the harder things. And some of the things I'm gonna to share today are, are a little difficult, but not so much. But they feel like so weighty when you're in the midst of discouragement. To, to lose all passion and excitement and enthusiasm. You have no desire to be enthusiastic ever again. Maybe even you think today that you'll never be enthusiastic or happy again. And that's just simply not true. You're just in a downtime and it's foggy and it hurts, but better times are coming. It's easy to stay in discouragement, in despair, maybe even leading to depression. And as you sit there, it just increases and grows and festers and then it buries us. I mentioned for the last couple of weeks that we had books coming in on this topic. They're downstairs now and you can pick them up in the bookstore where we selected a few very choice resources on this topic of discouragement and depression because it's God's will to equip you to press on through the situation and find the encouragement of the Lord because the alternative choice is not just to sit there in discouragement, but the alternative is you can place your hope in God. You can cry out to God. It, instead of that response in your flesh, you go, well, you know, Ed, what good is that gonna do? Why don't you do it and tell me? Watch God meet you. Don't talk yourself out of it, but obey God's word. Sometimes I found in my own life that obedience, obedience is necessary in my life. I know that for sure across the board, but it seems more necessary when I don't want to obey. <laughs> like I really need it there. 
And I don't just mean like in radical, crazy sin. I mean in pulling away from people, pulling away from those that love me, pulling away from the church fellows, pulling away from God himself. I need to hope in God, trust him with my life. That no matter what comes my way, he is unmoved and unfazed. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, still sitting on the throne, still the Lord of my life, and he is still good and faithful even when I'm faithless. And we hope in God. We trust him. We hold fast to him. So let me share this with you. When you cry out to God, the circumstances may not change. That's disappointing. (laughs) It's like, wait, wait a minute. I thought I'm crying out to God and I'm praying. I'm praying for my circumstances to change. Actually, you're not. You're praying for the will of God to be done in your life. You're praying for a revelation of his perfect will. And so when you hope in God, this is what you're doing. It's not that my present circumstances are good, but that God is good despite what I'm going through. It's not that my circumstances are good. No, it's that God is good and he's been faithful to me. So let's jump into this text and let's look at eight things that will really help us in discouragement. Number one, it's the first eight verses that we looked at last time. Number one, when discouragement comes, well, generally expect opposition. Have the right expectations. Because somewhere along the way, theology changed and some false teaching got out there. And the idea is this, especially if you got saved later in life and you really jacked your life up and you come to church and you're like, man, I'm on my last leg. And if if God doesn't help me, then I'm not going to make it. And God does help you. And you're born again. And the thought is now, I lived my life apart from God for so many years and paid a high price for it. Now that I follow God, everything's going to be great. We're going to have my best life now, and I'm going to have everything perfect, and I'm going to have all the money that I want, all the health that I want, everything I want. We're just going to skip through the roses and through the garden, and we're going to smell the flowers, and we're going to jump from leap, you know, from mountain to mountain, and whatever it is that I couldn't even think of something that would be nice for you, but you know what it is. Have ice cream every day or, you know, whatever it is. And the idea is that, man, now that I'm a believer, I'll never face adversity ever again. That's false. It's the exact opposite of what Jesus taught us. Jesus said, in this world, are you guys all in this world, yes or no? In this world, okay, this is for us. You will face tribulations. In the plural, not just one, but little t, tribulations. But be of good cheer, I've overcome the world. The world will be hard, but hope will get you through. Because hope is in a person. It's not an emotion. It's a, man, I trust you, Jesus. You got through, I get through. You're inside of me. You'll help me through the tribulations. Let me show you an example of this in Mark's gospel. Would you turn over with me, please, to Mark chapter 4? Mark chapter 4. This is a general expectation. A lot of the pain that we experience and discouragement is we have mismatched expectations where we expect one thing from God and something else is delivered so we get mad at God. And it's discouraging. But in that little episode, what we're doing is we're creating God in our own image. (laughs) And we don't want God in our own image, limited by our own thinking and our own resources. We want the high and mighty God, the one that's sovereign over all, who knows what he's doing in my life. 
I just texted this to my daughter as I was praying for her. I, I, this verse has just been exploding in my life where Jesus is ready to feed the, the thousands and, and he asks, hey, go get some bread. And then it says, um, he already, he did the, he asked this to test him because he already knew what he was going to do. And you know, God already knows what he's gonna do in your life. He already knows. We're all flipped out about it. We're all freaked out. We don't know. But it's really what? Just a test to reveal to us where we are in our relationship with God because God already knows what he's going to do. You, brought, you walked in at the end, of the, in the end of all services last time we asked for you to jot down your prayer requests so we could pray over them Wednesday morning with our teacher staff and our church staff together in our Devo time super early in the morning. And that's what we did. We took all of the... Uh, prayer requests that were put up on the stage and we put them together from all the services and then we laid them out and divided them between uh, everyone. We prayed for them until we were done and lifted up every one of them. And, you know, I, I didn't read every single one of them. I only read what was in my stack and what was in my stack were some pretty heavy things, really heavy, really difficult, really challenging. And God wants to remind you today that he already knows what he's going to do with what you wrote down. He already knows. He's working it out in your life, as painful as it is. And we just need to expect opposition. Opposition while we're abiding. Opposition while we're obeying. Opposition while we're making progress. Opposition while we're praying, raising our kids in the ways of the Lord. Opposition comes, and it happens here in Mark chapter 4. If you would turn your attention there to verse 35. Mark chapter 4, verse 35. A very familiar episode in the life of the followers of Jesus. Those that we call disciples or apostles, notice with me chapter 4, verse 35, it says, on the same day when evening had come, he said to them, let's cross over to the other side, which is pretty common. They, they would, it, you go to Israel with us, you'll see the Sea of Galilee is not very large. You pop in a boat, cross over to the other side, takes 30, 45 minutes, and that would be very normal. You come out on the Sea of Galilee with us on a boat as we pray out in the middle. Usually the water is very glassy. Uh, you can, it's got great acoustics. It's a beautiful thing. It's surrounded by, by some hills on the side, you know, mountains on the side. That The way they're formed, the wind just comes right through like a wind tunnel and can whip up a storm like that, like an ocean-type storm. And notice, they're just doing normal, their normal life. Let's go to the other side. So they left, verse 36. And they took Jesus along in the boat, and there were other little boats with them also. Verse 37, and a great windstorm arose, and the waves beat into the boat so that it was already filling. These are, there's some experienced fishermen here, like, like some really hardcore, this is their profession, what they do for a living. And as they're on, as, as they're on the Sea of Galilee, this massive storm comes and beats them. And that sometimes you can describe the trials you go through, just beating, beating, coming into the boat. You feel like you're going to sink. This was such a serious time. Look what happened. It says, well, first in verse 38, while this is all going, where's Jesus? It says, he's in the stern. What does your Bible say? Asleep. Now, let me ask you a question, theological question here. Why was Jesus asleep? He was tired. That's right. Not every question is answered with some high-minded theology. Jesus was asleep because he was tired, fully man and fully God. He was asleep because he was tired. And sometimes that's exactly, you're like, hey, why are you sleeping through Pastor Ed's message? <laughs> you're tired, just the way it is. You had a long night, worked on an overnight shift, or got a kid crying all night. Fine, sleep. 
I'll just speak to your subconscious. <laughs> the Lord will get you one way or the other. So notice, notice. Look what happens, the storms. Just like the disorienting of your discouragement, it causes them to turn against God. Teacher, don't you care that we're perishing? Wow. If we sneaked into your prayer closet, I wonder how many times we'd hear that, where that's just where you're at. That's just where you're at. Do you, do you not care about me anymore? Why are you going to let us die? Don't you know? Like, didn't you know when couldn't we gone at your God? You know, you could have gone at another time, and on and on that list is. And then he says in verse 39, Jesus arose and he rebuked the wind, not the disciples. And he told the sea to be still, and the wind ceased, and there was a great calm. And he speaks to them and he says, Why are you guys so fearful? And where's your faith? Which is really what happens when you're discouraged. You become fearful and faithless. Because somehow the expectation, when you go out on the Sea of Galilee, you've got to expect that storms can come. So far in all the trips that we have taken tours to Israel, one time the day before, there was a large storm on the sea. We, and we were on the boat and there was those big things they tie the ropes on. It was like super thick, was snapped off because the storm was so strong. So we missed it by one day. Praise God for that. I don't think they took anybody out on that. But when you go on the sea, you got to expect storms. Listen, when you enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ, you need to expect opposition. Even in your mind, you think you're doing everything right. Let me give you a quiz. I want you, this is interactive, so you have to answer my questions, and you only have two choices. You can either answer yes or no, but there are no other answers. So don't make one up. There's no all of the above. It's either yes or no. So listen, let's look at this episode. Number one, are the disciples in the boat, on the sea, in the will of God? Yes. A plus plus. Number two, are the disciples faithfully serving Jesus in the boat, on the sea? Yes. Number three, are the disciples in the very physical presence of Jesus Christ? Yes. And storms still came. And it's true for them, it's true for you. Just like the, back in Nehemiah, just like they are going, doing a great thing. They've sacrificed everything. It would be easy for them. Then we've given everything up for you. It's like, what are you doing, God? This is normal. Trust me. This is normal. Number two. Let's come back to Nehemiah. Number two. A second way to defeat discouragement is found in verse nine, and that is prayer. I know, I know. Prayer is always mentioned, but it's always needed. It's one of the areas of our life that God has made so easy. And haven't you found that the easier things are often neglected? Like prayer, so easy, neglected. Giving of your tithes and offerings, so easy, neglected. Talking to someone with your voice about Jesus Christ, so easy and yet so neglected. And here, one way to combat discouragement is prayer. That's what they do in verse 9. It says, nevertheless, we made our prayer to our God. And because of them, we set a watch against them day and night. You like to write in your Bibles? Circle that phrase. Because of them. Because of the enemies of God, we prayed. A lot of the battles in our lives, a lot of, most of the battles in our lives are actually tied to difficulties with people. Would you agree? People, family, situations, people on the road, people at work, people, people, people. 
the, the manifestation of difficulties in our lives almost always comes through people. But we've learned, haven't we? We don't wrestle against flesh and blood. So anytime you try to take on people, you are wasting your energy and making it worse. Instead, we're to pray because it's not the people so much as it is the spiritual reality of the enemy of your soul to use that person to destroy you. Listen, someone else's sin in your life, even if it's sin against you, does not give you permission to sin. And prayer will put you in the right position. Prayer will put you in the right position. As a matter of fact, I asked you to circle that because of them. And I want you to consider this. It's because of them you're praying. It's because of them. If you didn't have them in your life, you wouldn't be so desperate for God to act. You wouldn't be rushing into his presence. It's because of them. It's because of them that your prayer life explodes. And might I just add before we move to the next point, you also are them to someone else. They go, oh, Ed, no, it's true. That's why there's so much in the Bible about forgiveness, reconciliation, humility, repentance, so that we can come together and restore relationships because we also are them. And because of them, our prayer lives come alive. Prayer is important. And may the Lord forgive us for doing everything first before we choose to pray. And instead of just, man, let's just, then let's go to prayer. Let's pray about it right now. Prayer has a way, even for the moments that you pray, to dispel discouragement. Right in the moment. Number three. Oh, this is a good one. Number three. Notice verse nine, it says at the end. We set a watch against them day and night. And then verse 15, and it happened when our enemies heard that it was known to us that God had brought their counsel to nothing, that all of us returned to the wall, everyone to his work. So it was from that time on, this is verse 16, half of my servants worked at construction while the other half held the spears and shields and bows and wore armor and the leaders were behind all the house of Judah. Those who built on the wall and those who carried burdens loaded themselves so that with one hand they worked at construction and with the other hand they had a weapon. Verse 18, every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside me. So here's number three. Number three is carry your sword. Ow, no, I'm just kidding. Carry your sword. Did you guys write that down? Carry your sword. Ow. Carry your sword for dramatic effect. <laughs> Carry your sword. It's not the physical sword. If I see you walking around Aurora like this, you will probably, the sword will be in the trunk and you will be in the back of a police car. <laughs> no. The sword here is metaphoric for us, and that is the sword is the word of God. If there is one or, you know, one of the top things that is a problem in our church, Calvary Church, and I'm not speaking to the church at large, I'm not speaking to the whole church, I'm just speaking for the church that I'm responsible for. If there is one of the greatest issues and problems in our church is that many of you do not place a high value on God's word. You don't read it, you don't use it, you don't memorize it, you don't give it to your kids. You don't read it to your kids before you go to You just don't care about the word of God. And you wonder, why is my life such a mess? Well, because you're not carrying your sword. You're not using it. You're not in it. It's not in you. 
You've got every excuse of not. Some of you, you've been in this church for a long time. You don't even own a Bible. You know, maybe you have it on you have it on social, you know, on your iPad or whatever, and you have it on your phone. Great, but you don't have a Bible. The one where the battery never runs out, where you're never interrupted by some text message when you're reading the scriptures, where one where you can circle it and write on it and highlight it, one where you could take it with you, one where you can, well, there's something with books you can't do with an iPad. Anytime I buy a brand new book, I open it and I do this. Mm. Because there's just something about the word of God. Smelling the leather and just remembering as I open the word, man, God, you love me. You care for me. You got to carry the sword. Set a watch. And be equipped against the wiles of the devil with the truth. Turn over to Ephesians chapter 6. I'll show you what I mean. Ephesians chapter 6. Because it's very important. Now, the reality of the word of God, if you don't own a Bible, in the chairs in front of you, you, there are Bibles there. Take one. I didn't even look around until you find a brand new one and take it with you. Because some of you go, well, Ed, you know, that, that, ver- that version you're using up there, I don't understand the language. And I, okay, well, there's two versions of Bibles in the chairs. There's an easier one than the one I'm reading right now. Take the easier one. Hey, take them both and test them together. It, uh, just, just take a Bible and make it a part of your life. Let it become a more regular part of your life. Because if you don't, you're prone to be more discouraged, not less. Isn't that true with prayer? When I pray more, I'm discouraged less. But when I pray less, I'm discouraged more. And then if I'm discouraged more, guess what? I'll pray less. And it's a never-ending cycle away from God. When Nehemiah saw the enemy, he literally told them, hey, the work needs to continue. I gotta keep living. I I gotta go to work. I gotta take a shower. I gotta put on my clothes. Even in the worst of times, which is a principle that I picked up over the years, Uh, In the grieving process and the deepest dark parts of our lives, I I picked up this principle from Elizabeth Elliot in reading all of her works. And she gave this little phrase. I actually just posted it on my blog uh, at edtaylor.org if you want to read articles on grief and encouragement. I just posted a new one. And, And her instruction was this. You know, in the deepest thing, especially when you wake up in the morning and the deepest sorrow and the deepest sadness and you don't know what to do, her counsel was this. Do the next thing. So... Get up, get out of bed, go take a shower, get dressed, go shopping, do the dishes, go to work. Those are things that God can enable you to do. You, can, you might be overwhelmed with what will my life be the rest of my life. And that can be super overwhelming when you're already discouraged. And I love what she just reduced it down. Here's just do the next thing. Just what's in front of you. You can do the next thing. You can take the next step. You can say the next word. And so in light of this, when you're instructed to carry the sword, notice what the Bible says when it comes to this issue of spiritual warfare. Ephesians chapter 6. Let's start in verse 10 together. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 10. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities and powers, against the rulers of the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand. Stand, therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, and above all, 
taking the shield of faith with which you'll be able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit, and he defines it for us, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for the saints. That is the spiritual battle, and yet God has equipped us. And when spiritual warfare, when spiritual discouragement comes our way, we stand in the equipment that God has given us. And like the, like the men in Nehemiah's day, they worked, they did the next thing, but they also had the sword with them, the word of God. And I know one of the big barriers between some of you and the word of God is you know how hard it is to find things and find things, well, you know, I'm anxious right now, so where do I go in the Bible? And most Bibles don't give a topical index. They give what's in the back called a concordance. And a concordance is a list of words that you can find in the Bible, where a topical index is something that gives you the topic and shows you different verses where it is. And that's why it can be frustrating sometimes when you turn back to the back of your Bible and you go, well, I'm looking for a topic, but it's actually a word index, not a topical index. And so I've recommended this resource for many, many years. It's, it's a pick of the month. I, I use it all the time myself. It's a quick scripture reference for counseling, or you could say it's better even for discipleship. And we had a big shipment of these in the store, but they're all gone downstairs, so we're gonna order more. This is the last one in the building. Oh, $50, $60, $70, no, I'm just <laughs> This is the last one. They're going to take it back down to the bookstore, but we're going to order more. And this is a topical index so that when you open it up and you're going, okay, I'm feeling, I'm I'm anxious today. Well, there's a whole section that's dedicated to anxiety, to blame shifting, to faith in God, to fear, forgiveness. It's one of the most effective tools for people that want to find their way around the Bible or an effective tool so that you can help someone else when you're opening the Bible. Um, Like if you email me, I just got an email this week. It said, you know, Pastor Ed, I'm just looking for scriptures uh, of I'm anxious this week. So I opened up, I have this on my computer, on my Bible program. I go right to it, click anxiety. I think I copied, maybe there's 20 verses. I copied and pasted them all, sent them back. And I said, here, start with these and tell me how it goes. And you know, sometimes you just go through the list and you go, no, the first verse was enough. That was so comforting to me. I'm just so encouraged. And so these will be available. They'll take this down to the bookstore later and uh, you can uh, grab it. And maybe, you, if, again, you can buy it on Amazon if you want. It's not about our bookstore. Uh, it's about you getting resources. Uh, it's about you having what you need to be an effective man and woman in our city and our community. And you need tools like this so you can carry the sword. Number four, number four. Know your weak areas. How do you battle discouragement? Know and recognize and admit your weak areas. We find that in verse 13. It says, therefore, Nehemiah is writing here, and he says, therefore, I positioned men behind the lower parts of the wall at the openings. Those were vulnerable places where the enemy could sneak in. They weren't complete. The wall wasn't completed yet. So there were vulnerable places still that, that would be open for the enemy to do great destructive work. So what does Nehemiah do? He puts people at the places of vulnerability, at the places of weakness. And there is that need in your life to admit that you have weak areas. Because we've been taught in our culture to pretend there are no weaknesses in us. I've got it all together. There is no problem with me. And all the while, that is a prideful position to take. Leaving you open to the enemy because he will exploit even weak areas that you don't know about. So the ones that you do know about 
Here, here's the thing, it requires humility to admit that you have weak areas in your life and know them, admit them, and place a guard around them. Place a guard around your life in those areas that are weak. You know, here at Calvary, when someone comes on, on our team, we talk to them about a document and a commitment that's known as the Modesto Manifesto. It was a document that the Billy Graham Association put together back in the 50s, right when their ministry was starting to blossom and grow. And the leaders and the elders of the Billy Graham Association came together and said, look, we do not want to fall into sin. We do not want to be like some of the other evangelists. We want a ministry of integrity, and we want to make the decisions on the back end to maintain this integrity. And they came up with this document in Modesto of a Modesto Manifesto, and they made a mutual agreement. It is not a legalistic document. It's not a document that you have to. It's a document that you get to be a part of. And so the, the things that they mentioned was money. They made guards against money, pride, and women, and how to relate to women and how to relate to people in the opposite sex so you don't find yourself in a weakened, vulnerable position that would lead you towards sexual sin. And I have to say, looking back now, we're talking 60, 70 years after they sat down I, I, to make this agreement and, and how Billy Graham's now in the presence of the Lord, I would say that their commitments worked out pretty well. The Billy Graham Association to this day is a ministry of integrity. Not without mistakes, but a ministry of integrity, which would be the true for every other church and every other home that decides to watch out for your weak areas. For example, when you're discouraged... It may not be wise for you to go down to the bar. That's what you were saved out of, the bar scene, the party scene, where, they, where the alcohol flows freely and everybody talks, you know, every, you feel like everybody knows you there. And you, you, you may not, well, not, I'm not even going to say you may not. You shouldn't go to the bar when you're discouraged. <laughs> Just don't do it. As a matter of fact, when you think of whatever you were saved out of, why would you go back to that which you were saved out of when you're discouraged? We should run to the Lord. You don't need to go back to the bar. That's not going to help you. If you were safe from the party scene, heading out to a rave party isn't going to help you. If, if you were safe from the drug culture, from the gang culture, running back to that world, that is not going to help you. You hope in God, not in man. Know your weak areas. And instead, call somebody for help that will encourage you. But don't go back to the things that you were delivered from. The things that God rescued you from the things that God broke the bondage of in your life, because you're discouraged, don't run back to sin. It won't help you. It'll make things worse. Number five, number five. Remember what you would lose if you quit. Remember what you would lose if you quit. And we find this in verse 14. Nehemiah stands up and he tells people under attack. And I looked and arose. And I said to the nobles, to the leaders, to the rest of the people, do not be afraid of them. Remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight for your brethren, your sons, your daughters, your wives, and your houses. He says, remember the Lord, great and awesome, and fight. This is no time to quit. It's time to fight. Fight to get out of the fog. You know, if you just threw in the towel and quit, it would be devastating to so many people. It would be devastating. You would hurt so many people. It would have ripple effects that could last forever. And I, I do speak of giving in to these suicidal thoughts. Suicide is not the answer. It is not the answer to the difficulty that you're in right now. You will hurt so many people. 
It will not relieve the pressure for another hundred people for another hundred years. It's a, te- it's a permanent solution to a temporary problem. The fog will get lighter and the feelings will dissuade. But I also think of quitting in many other areas. You know, the, the reality of Nehemiah, as he's here, he was careful to make sure that, that they remember who they're fighting for. You know, some of you are like, well, Ed, you just don't know me. You don't know me. You know, I, I don't, my life, I don't have very many friends. I don't have a very big family. You don't know me. But really what you're saying is, what, if, if that's you and you're kind of feeling that right now, let me say, this is what really is the reality behind that statement. What, what you're really saying is, you, what you're really telling me is you really don't know how many people you affect. How many people care about you? How many people love you? How many people look up to you? How many people are watching you? Yeah, you may not be super close to them. You may not have developed a deep relationship with them, but your life matters. It matters in every area, including the people that are around you watching you, including your church family, because when one part of the body hurts, the whole body hurts. So remember, you're fighting. Because here's the thing. This is why you need to remember this. Discouragement can make us so self-focused and self-centered and self-absorbed and selfish that we can easily forget how important our lives are to the Lord and to others. Now, I want you to listen for a second. You're going to hear crickets because that's what happened in every service. It's hard to hear that your discouragement can actually lead you over the line to sinful selfishness but it can. I speak from personal experience. I don't know where the line is in your life. I'm still learning the line in my life, but I have crossed that line on more than one occasion in the last six years of real pain and grief turning into real self-absorption and selfishness that isn't compatible with a, a true abiding relationship with Jesus. It disrupts your faith. It disrupts, and because, because discouragement can make you so selfish, and self-absorbing, you forget that there's a lot of people surrounding your life that loves you and care for you and are pulling for you and rooting for you and praying for you and ready to help you at any moment. Don't quit. It will get better. There are times of encouragement that will come from the Lord. Number six, number six, that's also in verse 18. Call for help when you need it. Call for help when you need it. In verse 18 it says, Every one of the builders had his sword girded at his side as he built, and the one who sounded the trumpet was beside him. So we get the idea of the sword, but what's the deal with the trumpeter hanging out with Nehemiah? Well, you'll recall earlier on, we were told that when the trumpet sounded, you were to rally to the trumpet because there was a danger, there was a difficulty. So when there was a difficulty, sound the trumpet. And if you heard the trumpet, it was your responsibility to leave what you're doing and rally to wherever that point is to help the people in need. And I would say in discouragement, there are times when you just need to sound the trumpet and ask for help. Once again, it requires humility, but it's worth it. And I would say, even in asking for help, I would add this. Don't make a major life decision in the midst of discouragement. Don't make a major life decision. It wasn't too long ago I was talking to a brother who has some serious life decisions to make after a major tragedy, a very unique one. 
And he came to me and said, this is the situation, Ed. What should I do? My answer to him was, I really have no idea what you're supposed to do. I don't know. But I do know this. Don't make any major decisions until the discouragement subsides a little bit. Don't make any major decisions while you're hurting, while you're overwhelmed. Don't, don't do that. Wait. Just, just wait. Wait it out. It's never wrong to wait on the Lord. I, I wrote down a few things that I can think of that I've seen over the years. Like in a major dis- discouragement, in a major deep discouragement, don't file the divorce papers. You wait. Wait. Wait it out. Don't go on that binge. Wait. Don't move to another state. Uh, don't move to another neighborhood. Wait it out. Don't quit your job. Don't quit. Just keep going to work and let's see how it turns out. Don't, don't leave your church. Don't, don't, well, the solution is a new church. No, don't wait it out. Wait it out until the discouragement comes. And instead, call help. Call for help. Whether it's from a friend, a relative, a neighbor, a spiritual leader, sound the alarm so that the people can rally to you because it's not something you can handle by yourself. You weren't intended to live alone, but in community with others that love you and care for you. Number seven, number seven, we're almost done. Darker times call for special attention. Darker times call for special attention. We see that at the end of the chapter in verse 21. Darker times, deeper, darker times require special attention. Verse 21. So we labored in the work. Half of the men held the spears from daybreak until the stars appeared. At the same time, I also said to the people, let each man and his servants stay at night in Jerusalem, that they may be our guard by night and a working party by day. So neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who follow me took off our clothes, except that everyone took them off for washing. This is a special attack against the people. So Nehemiah responded with special, unique ways to combat it. Like, like he required the men to be there 24-7. Some, they, some had to sleep there, then they had to wake up and work, and they would be protective all night, work all day. It required a special attention while the enemy was pressing in. This reminded me of a principle that I share with the pastoral team here, because the, the last thing a pastor should do is be a clock watcher. A pastor should have the heart of the church always on his mind, the care and concern of the church. And there are times when, no, we're not clock watchers. There are times where we've got to be on 24-7 watch. We've got to be ready. We've got to be equipped. Sometimes it's so much that we don't even change our clothes just to wash them and put them right back on. We don't have time for that. We only have time. Like I remember what Paul told Timothy. He says, hey, look, man, like a soldier, don't care about the things of the earth, man. You've got to think about spiritual things. You gotta think, got think about the requirement. These guys were working way more than they needed to. Why? Because they're fighting for the kids and for the daughters and the sons and the family and the glory of God. It's a fight. And sometimes we need to put up extra energy in our fight when darker times come. And darker times can come. As we're living in the last days, we need to find ourselves, as the work continues, sometimes there's a new diligence, a new perseverance. And I don't think it's just true for us as pastors. I think it's true for the body of Christ. We need to awake that life spends 24 hours a day, seven days a week, and God could call you to attention at any time, that we wouldn't be found asleep, that we wouldn't be found just lazy and apathetic toward the things of God, especially when we're discouraged. And when you're, deep discouraged, it, when you're in deep discouragement, it requires special attention, not merely helping but also meeting it with obedience. Number eight, and we'll close here. Number eight, don't let your guard down. 
I like how the bookends of the, of the points where the first one was, hey, expect opposition, and then we end with, don't let your guard down. Don't let your guard down. Notice that's at the very last verse in verse 23. It says, so neither I, my brethren, my servants, nor the men of the guard who follow me took off our clothes except that everyone took them off for washing. Why? Because they stayed continually watching. They stayed alert. They were ready. They, just because it was quiet didn't mean the enemy wasn't going back with some new scheme. And so this, this really reminds me when you come out of discouragement, you got to stay alert. You got to be careful. You, you want to be in that place where you learn the things that God was teaching you through that difficult time. Would you turn over to our last verse in scripture today in 1 Peter chapter 5? 1 Peter chapter 5. You know, Peter would understand this. Peter was a very close confidant of Jesus Christ. He understood Jesus being the savior of the world. He had spiritual insight. He was fully committed, the kind of guy you want on your team. And he also failed. And he failed greatly. He, he did everything big. When he obeyed, he obeyed big. And when he failed, he failed big. And he denied Jesus Christ. Imagine that. He denied him literally to his face and deserted Jesus in his greatest time of need, not once, not twice, but three times. And he recognizes what great failure is, but he also recognizes what great restoration and forgiveness there is with Jesus. And when he says this, he knows what he means. He knows it because he experienced it. He experienced the opposite and he experienced the positive. Notice with me in verse 8 of 1 Peter chapter 5. Be sober. Be vigilant. Because your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. Resist him. Steadfast in the faith knowing that the same sufferings are experienced by your brotherhood in the world. But may the God of all grace who called us to his eternal glory by Christ Jesus, after you've suffered a while, perfect you, establish you, strengthen, and settle you. Why, verse 11? To him be the glory and the dominion forever and ever. And everyone says, amen. 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 God wants you to face discouragement in him. Abiding. Intimate. Intimacy leads to purity. Purity leads to power. Power leads to intimacy, and you find you're the safest place on the planet Earth for anybody is to be found in Christ Jesus. And so, Father, we ask for the special anointing of your spirit today to fill this place in all your glory, to grow in love and mercy and grace among us. And I pray for the discouraged. I pray for the difficult situations. And that, Lord, you would give us the intimacy the purity, the power that is rightly ours by relationship. <clears throat> and I pray for those that are discouraged, God, that you would lift the cloud and help them to persevere and endure. In Jesus' name, amen. We pray that you've been encouraged by this Bible study delivered live from the sanctuary of Calvary Aurora. For prayer or a copy of this study, call us at 877-30-GRACE. That's 877-304-7223. Or visit us online at calvaryaurora.org. Be blessed as you worship Jesus this week.